Hello and welcome to the EMG Health Podcast. In the place of our usual host, Jonathan Sakia, this episode will be hosted by me, Evgenia Kutsuki, the editor of the EMJ family of journals. As we approach the summer holidays, we thought this would be a fantastic opportunity to reflect on some highlights from the year so far. So grab some sunscreen and join me as we look back on some of the most interesting and memorable moments from the podcast that have made this year's series such a fascinating listen. We will kick off the highlights with a compelling interview with Dr. Oliver Grundman, who is a clinical professor at the Department of Medicinal Chemistry at the University of Florida in the USA. Jonathan and Oliver discussed how Oliver ended up training and teaching in the USA, their opinion on the use of vitamins and how the gut microbiota and the central nervous system are connected. One memorable moment is when they discuss the current dietary supplement regulations in the USA. Or maybe the international and national standards of what we need are playing wrong and we need to rethink the standards, yes? Or diets get a bit, you know, screwy. There's a lot of very screwy diets out there, right? Yeah, I, I would definitely agree that. And when it comes to the regulation, something that was basically mentioned in the article that you cited, that you mentioned, uh, it's clear that in the United States, it's a mess at the moment when it yeah. comes to dietary supplement regulation, to herbal supplement regulation. It has lots of loopholes in it. Um, we need better quality oversight. But when we look to to Europe, we, we have a better system where it is more regulated, where folks may, might get a little bit better quality for the product they are grabbing from from the aisle or you know getting from the pharmacist or elsewhere. Jonathan's second guest in this series was Agnes Fogel, who's a professor of pathology, microbiology, and immunology at the Vanderbilt School of Medicine in the USA. In this episode, Agnes talks about the transatlantic move from her home in Norway and the progression of her extremely successful career. Jonathan and Agnes also discuss a range of pertinent issues in the field of renal pathology, including advances in renal biopsies, such as digital pathology. Digital pathology hasn't quite become mainstay for diagnostic kidney pathology because of the number of serial sections we look, the number of stains we look at. It's not quite as efficient. It takes more time. It requires more resources and bandwidth. Some things you cannot diagnose on a digitized whole slide image, like crystals. You cannot polarize a whole slide image. And then I think that we are beginning to move forward to a very exciting arena that is still only in the research mode with spatial transcriptomics and multiplex staining that will give us a greater repertoire of understanding the molecular signature associated with lesions that may look the same by light microscopy or immunofluorescence, but have very different underlying stages and mechanisms and may result in different treatments. That's still in the research stages, but there are really exciting studies there. So we still do light microscopy, immunofluorescence, electron microscopy. We integrate all of those findings with the clinical history. Another great episode came about in mid-May when Jonathan had a captivating conversation with Sharon Allen, co-founder and executive director of the World Telehealth Initiative, a non-profit organization. Jonathan started off by exposing Sharon's childhood mischief before getting into the nitty-gritty of her non-profit organization. 
And as a child, she apparently regularly made herself at home in her neighbor's house, unbeknownst to them. And apparently ingress and egress was through a doggy door. So from lifesaver to housebreaker. And oh, by the way, Sharon has completed over 10 triathlons, meddling in all. Jonathan and Sharon discuss how Sharon came to co-found the World Telehealth Initiative and detail the valuable work that the organization does worldwide. Sharon covers the mission of the initiative and also touches on how COVID helped develop telemedicine and deliberates about how this technology is being used to help Ukrainian surgeons while at war. With the use of innovative technology to connect volunteer healthcare professionals with those in need, the World Telehealth Initiative provides sustainable medical expertise to under-resourced communities around the world. Sharon, can you succinctly state the main mission of WTI and how do you go about achieving those goals, those aims? Sure. Our mission is actually quite simple. We connect volunteer physicians with clinics and hospitals in under-resourced communities around the world by using this telehealth technology. And in doing so, we offer 55 medical specialties to patients in need, while we are also providing medical and surgical training to in-country physicians and care teams. So all of our programs, we focus on building the local capacity of the health system and strengthening that healthcare infrastructure within our partner communities. The following week, Jonathan was joined by James Kinn, who is a clinical assistant professor at the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Calgary in Canada. James talks about his time studying and working in different continents and the differences in healthcare that struck him during these experiences. Mental health awareness has been an important topic over the past decade, and even more so during the COVID pandemic. James is a serving member on the Education Committee for ADHD for the Canadian ADHD Resource Alliance, and the pair expressed their views on the diagnosis of ADHD and how much the treatment improved over the years. I think the awareness has improved for sure. I mean, the amount of uh, ADHD that we have missed uh, when they were uh, when the adults were children is massive. We are diagnosing adult ADHD like. A lot, a lot, especially during pandemics. And uh, but what I think what's really important is that uh, even up to recent years, we were treating ADHD to improve people's function. So kids will do better at school, and adults will uh, be more productive at work, and so on. But now we are actually getting some very grave data regarding ADHD. So I think we should uh, change the way we think. So for example, if the child has ADHD and, and they're not and he or she is not treated, then it actually affects their brain development. So MRI studies show that there is a decreased brain development in prefrontal cortex where the executive function is made, along with a few other areas. So, um, and there are some other studies that shows that the actual estimated weight of brain decreases if they do not take medication. That's one um, major problem because now we are seeing ADHD not as just a mental health condition, but it's actually a neurodevelopmental condition. One of the most fascinating discussions of this podcast was the use of Botox in migraines. 
Apart from the regular cosmetic uses of Botox in the reduction of wrinkles, it was interesting to discover the clinical uses of this treatment. Jonathan and James discussed the treatment of chronic migraine using Botox and how this compares to the traditional prescription of painkillers. James explained that Botox works for migraine headaches as it blocks the action of neurotransmitters. Well, well I'll tell you what, let, let, let's move on to and get drilled down a little bit because I'm, I'm fascinated by headaches. I didn't know that, that, that WHO characterized it uh, as such. And I'm fascinated by the etiology of headaches. And I think that some are caused by muscular tension in the occipitalis or the, the cranial aponeurosis, tension headaches. But I know that one of your preferred methods for treating chronic migraine is by injecting Botox, which is something I know absolutely nothing about. So can you please explain <laughs> how that works and why that's been such an appeal for you? Yes. So Botox is, as you know, it's a neurotoxin that uh, helps to relax the muscle. Or I, I believe it was initially designed for cosmetic reasons only. So um, the interesting story is that the, uh, there was a, um, a plastic surgeon who was injecting uh, Botox for cosmetic reasons and uh, realized that uh, some of these patients were actually improving uh, in terms of their migraines. And then more research went on. Um, and that's basically how the Botox in chronic migraine was born. It um, basically the way it works is that it's not actually relaxing the muscle um, because that's what a lot of people think. And that's what I used to think as well. Uh, so relaxing the muscles, therefore your tension goes down and that's how your migraine gets improved, but it's not actually. Um, it actually helps to um, reduce some of the pain molecules such as CGRP, glutamate and so on from being released from the presynaptic region. So it prevents these molecules to be released at the synapses. Therefore, the pain signals gets reduced. And that's how the Botox works, um, not just by relaxing the muscle and, and relaxing the muscles. And uh, another byproduct of relaxing the muscles, obviously, getting rid of some of the wrinkles, um, which is a fortunate um, side effect <laughs> to some people. So, um, but yeah, but at the end of the day, it's really the uh, prevention of the pain molecules from being released. Well, well, well. So there you go. Who knew? Another compelling interview was with Leslie Moffat, a prominent and now retired urologist. It was interesting to hear about what inspired Leslie to get into this competitive field and what motivated him to progress in this field. According to Leslie, urologists are a calm breed, and this is clear in his calming demeanour. It was very difficult in my day to get into urology. You, you might be surprised at that, but um, there were very few jobs. Pleased to say that uh, it's much easier now. It's still competitive. I, I think also the, the personality of urologists attracted me. Other specialists can take things very, very seriously, but urologists tend to be a more relaxed breed. When I started out, I wondered about doing something like thoracic surgery or even cardiac surgery. But I began to realise that I just wasn't rude enough to do these things. <laughs> I'm actually smiling. But it's true, isn't it? There are personalities to the oh, indeed. surgical specialists. Indeed. Surgeons are not shrinking violets. I mean, you can't sort of hum and haw if, somebody's got to, if you've got to take somebody's leg off. I mean, you, you, yeah. you do have to be reasonably firm in your, your advice that you have to do something, otherwise the patient's going to perish. Yeah. 
Medical publishing is key in educating the younger generation of urologists. And Leslie, an author of two books and several published papers on prostate cancer, covered the ways in which the treatment of this condition and the diagnosis have improved over the years. As you recognize, uh, a great, uh, a large subject. But one of the things that happened when people started getting on top of benign prostatic disease of the prostate was that the general surgeons were beginning to rub their hands and saying, well, you chaps will be out of a job. This is when drugs such as finasteride came along, which effectively shrink the prostate. But urologists are an enterprising bunch. And of course, we, in a way, invented prostate cancer and started to look at ways of how it could be treated. And nothing wrong with that. And due to the American influence, particularly, radical prostatectomy became uh, became extremely popular and became a great money earner for big centers in, in the United States. The uh, Patrick Walsh was the, the main proponent of radical prostatectomy. What a wonderful follow-up from Leslie, as Jonathan's next guest is Hugh Selznick, a consultant in sleep medicines and psychiatry at the University College London Hospitals in the UK. They say that happiness consists of getting enough sleep. This was emphasized by Hugh as he discussed sleep disorders and their association with neurological conditions. Do the sleep disorders follow on from the, um, from the neurological or psychiatric disorder uh, or does disturbed sleep cause them or both? So it, it's, it's both. Uh, certainly um, psychiatric and medical disorders can lead to sleep disorders. Um, you know, very simply, obesity can lead to obstructive sleep apnea and neurodegenerative disorders can lead to uh, sleep disorders like REM behavior disorder where people act out their dreams. So um, so REM sleep behavior disorder is a, is a condition where uh, normally in REM sleep, we are almost completely paralyzed. And that's a good thing because it stops us from acting out our dreams. If you dream that you're throwing a ball, your brain doesn't know when you're dreaming that this is not real. So your motor cortex is trying to move your arm to throw that ball, which is not a great idea if you're in bed asleep. So when we go into REM sleep, we should be almost completely paralyzed, and that stops us from acting out those dreams. In REM sleep behavior disorder, that paralysis doesn't happen for some reason. And so if the person dreams of throwing the ball, their arm is actually moving and they're trying to throw that ball in the bed. Um, and it's a relatively recently described condition, but uh, what's become clear is that it's uh, very often uh, the first sign of Parkinson's disease or dementia with Lewy bodies, uh, also something found in, in uh, multi-system atrophy. And you know, it's clearly sort of part of that neurodegenerative condition Um but uh, can often precede the other signs of, of those conditions by, by many years. The COVID pandemic affected us all in different ways, apart from the obvious. If you haven't been getting enough sleep, it's safe to say that you're not alone. According to Hugh, there are data to show that sleep disorders have become more common during the pandemic. What, what are the common reasons why COVID-induced sleep issues, or is it just that the newspapers had nothing else to write about. 
Well, uh, no, there is uh, there is data to show that uh, overall sleep problems have become more common uh, during the pandemic. And I think there are a number of explanations for this. The first is that particularly during the, the more intensive lockdowns, uh, people were not getting out the house. They were not getting exposed to daylight. They weren't getting exercise. And that uh, could potentially weaken their circadian rhythm. It could exacerbate any underlying restless legs, which tend to get better if you exercise. Um, a lot of it obviously was down to anxiety. Um, you know, this was a, a, a really anxiety-provoking time for a lot of people. And one other factor that we think probably plays a role is that um, we know that we form very strong associations with places. And when... You know, one of the things that we always advise insomnia patients is not to be in the bedroom at all unless you are sleeping. Because if you come to us, if you do lots of waking activities in your bedroom, you come to associate your bedroom with wakefulness. And the act of going into your bedroom therefore wakes you up through this power of classical conditioning. Um, and during the pandemic, of course, lots of people were working from their bedrooms. It became right. the place they held their meetings and made stressful decisions. And so they were creating this adverse association with the bedroom. Do you get enough sleep? In this podcast, you explained why it's important to make sure you get enough sleep and describes the consequences for lack of sleep. But don't listen to me. Let's hear the expert's advice. Can you characterize why these conditions are common, which are the most common, and why? And any other interesting observations you have, frankly? Yeah. So um, I, I guess the first thing to say is we spend a third of our lives sleeping. And so there is just a lot of opportunity for things to go wrong. Um, sleep is also not as passive a state as we used to believe it is. You know, sleep is really a, a collection of quite complex states. And that complexity also lends itself to, to things going wrong. Um, I do think that uh, one of the issues is that you know, very often the government gives us advice on good nutrition, you know, avoiding bad fats and eating lots of fiber on. Yeah. And, and that, that works, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, no one ever teaches you how to sleep. It, it's just assumed that you're born with this knowledge. And to some extent we are, but when suddenly you forget how to sleep or, or things go wrong, there just isn't the advice out there to, um, to help you to identify what the problem is and to correct it. So the common sleep disorders that we encounter are, as you've said, obstructive sleep apnea, but uh, insomnia is really the big one. But there are some very underdiagnosed sleep disorders, and the two in particular that I always like to highlight are the circadian rhythm disorders, where someone's internal body clock is out of sync with the outside world. Uh, and the common one is something called a delayed sleep-wake phase disorder, which is very common in adolescence. Um, and that, uh, these people really cannot fall asleep until really late at night. You know, they can only fall asleep at 2, 3, 4 in the morning. And if left to their own devices, they'll sleep through till late morning, lunchtime, early afternoon. But of course, the world doesn't allow them to do that. Um, and they are very often misdiagnosed as having insomnia, uh, but the treatment is very different. The other disorder, which uh, is correctly diagnosed in um, less than 10% of patients, is restless leg syndrome. And, it, and indeed, 
it amazes me that there are still doctors who genuinely believe that this condition doesn't exist. Now, as someone who uh, I've hurt, hurt my back a few years ago and had restless legs for about three weeks, I can tell you with absolute certainty it's a real thing. But again, it's almost always misdiagnosed as insomnia because these people have this incredible discomfort, which can be anywhere in the body, that is worse at night, worse at rest, and is only relieved by movement. And of course, if something is worse at night and at rest, it hits when you go to bed at night and you're trying to fall asleep and makes it impossible to fall asleep. Uh, and unfortunately, patients with, with uh, this condition will often go many years or decades uh, without being diagnosed and treated. This series would not be complete without Brian Buckley, who works at the Department of Radiology at the University of Dublin in Ireland. In this climate change and human health series, we covered a lot of different healthcare fields and how they affect our health. Brian is a climate change advocate and a lead author of the book, Radiology and the Climate Crisis, Opportunities and Challenges, which discusses the ways that radiology practice can become more environmentally friendly. For all the radiologists out there, this is an episode dedicated to you and your departments. Gandhi once said, be the change you want to see in the world. Let's hear what Brian had to say about the topic. Radiology and specifically the radiology department really is at the heart of everything that happens in the hospital from, from my point of view. And um, these days, almost every single patient that comes through the hospital doors will require some form of imaging uh, in one form or another. And they often pass through our department. Um, so, and even for many things, you know, we're kind of becoming the main point of contact for patients in their diagnosis and even treatment and even follow-up of certain conditions. Uh, so as a specialty, you can imagine it very varied, you know, there's multi different modalities, different diagnostic modalities, you have intervention, nuclear medicine. So it's very exciting um, and it embraces technology, uh, which is a big draw for me personally. Um, and it, obviously that kind of all together makes it a very exciting uh, specialty. So I think for me coming fresh out of college, Radiology probably wasn't particularly on my radar until I started working and quickly realized how important these uh, people were in the hospital. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today on the EMG Health Podcast. I'd like to thank all of the wonderful guests that have made 2022 such a remarkable year for EMG Health Podcast so far. And of course, our amazing host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. I would like to close by making an exciting announcement. As we celebrate 10 years since launching our first EMJ journal, we think that the time is right to refresh our look and set the tone for the future with a brighter, bolder and more dynamic visual identity. We believe our new identity far better reflects who we are today and our commitment to elevating the quality of healthcare globally. Stay tuned to find out more about our new brand and the new name for this podcast from next week. Until next time, I'm Evgenia Kutsuki and thank you for listening to the EMG Health Podcast. Bye.